I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Romans, I just about said, Romans 19, Revelation 19. Uh, we're going to continue our walk through Revelation, uh, looking at verses 1 to 10 of chapter 19 this morning. Uh, for some of you, I want to share a little bit of uh, an experience I had, an experience that I'm sure some of you uh, will be able to identify with. You, you'll have memories of this as well. Uh, for some of you, you may not, and so I ask you to bear with me, and, and hopefully you can pick up something of what I'm trying to communicate. I grew up in southern Ontario, and as a kid, my father would often take me, or often, we, we would regularly go uh, each year to a few Blue Jays games, me and my three brothers. We grew up playing baseball, we watched the Blue Jays, and we'd go to Blue Jays games. And it was it was exciting. We loved baseball and we loved the Blue Jays. Uh, the Blue Jays had some good teams, particularly in the late 80s, things were good. But in 1991, I moved away from Ontario to BC, where I began attending Columbia Bible College in the fall of uh, 91. In, in 1992, October, the Blue Jays, this team that I'd grown up cheering for, they, they not only made it into the playoffs, they, they won several rounds and they advanced to the World Series. They, I, I actually, I was, I was at CBC, I was contemplating selling my car to fly back to watch a game. I, I was so excited for, uh, for this team that I had cheered for. Wisdom prevailed, I kept my car. Um, but, but I followed as closely as I could. And I remember uh, in that World Series, uh, the, the Blue Jays lost game one, and then they proceeded to win three games in a row. They were up three games to one. For those unfamiliar with how that goes, they had to win one more game to win the World Series. Game five, they lost seven to two. It went to game six. It was played on October 24th in Atlanta. And I remember gathering with uh, probably everyone at CBC. Not everyone is a baseball fan, but in playoffs and when it's a Canadian team and it's never happened, sort of everyone comes out of the woodwork. And I remember uh, we were packed into the student lounge, wall-to-wall -wall bodies watching this game. The Blue Jays were winning. Uh, going into the bottom of the ninth, Atlanta was going to bat, but Toronto was winning 2-1. to one. They had never won the World Series before. And the excitement in the air was palpable. And then Atlanta scored. And, uh, and the game went into extra innings. And then in the top half of the 11th, the Blue Jays, two men on base, Dave Winfield hit a line drive down the, the left field line. Two runs scored. Toronto's winning 4-2. They need two, three outs in the bottom half of the inning, and they will win the World Series. For the first time, the World Series could be awarded to a team at north of the border. They'd never been there before. They were so close. But, but Atlanta's first batter got up and, and hit a single. He was on base. The, the next batter hit the ball to our shortstop, and, and what looked like a double play ball got misplayed. It was an error. And now they had two men on, the tying run on base already with no outs. Uh, the next batter laid down a bunt to advance the runners. He was out. Uh, the next batter grounded to first base. A runner scored, so it's 4-3, two outs. And, and a base runner on third, just 90 feet away from home, tying it again and forcing it into further innings. The Blue Jays switched pitchers. I remember watching this. A Jimmy Key came out. Mike Timlin went in. The manager warned him because the, the batter coming up was Otis Nixon, incredibly fast player who would often even bunt for a single. He could bunt the ball and get on base. And sure enough, his first, his first, the first pitch came in. He swung and fouled it off. But the next one came. He squared to bunt. Laid down a bunt. Mike Timlin was ready. He charged for it, grabbed the ball, threw it to first. Joe Carter caught it, 
Toronto had won 4-3. The place blew up. I mean, the excitement. Some of you may remember, perhaps some of you were watching that game. That, that room where I was just exploded with joy. Just this roar of excitement. This morning, we come to a text that describes for us a celebration that, that, that far surpasses the celebration that I remember that night in October 24th, 1992. But it does move us in the right direction. It, it helps us get a sense of the enormity, the explosiveness of joy that we are about to witness in this text this morning. What we see here in this text is this enormous eruption of joyous celebration, joyous worship for God's glorious work of salvation. Now before we turn and read the text, I want to remind you of a few things about the book of Revelation and the ground we've covered most recently. In these pages, Jesus pulls back the curtains. He lifts off the cover so that we can see what is really real, what is really true. Here we see the present in light of the unseen realities of the future. And we see the present in light of the unseen realities of the present. Just behind the veil, we see what is really real, what we cannot perceive with our own physical eyes. John, one of the twelve disciples, now an old man, He's in his mid-80s, has been exiled to the island of Patmos, just off the coast of present-day Turkey. On the Lord's Day, he's worshiping, and Jesus shows up. He hears a voice like a trumpet behind him, and he turns to see the voice, and he sees Jesus in all his glory and his majesty. And Jesus commissions John to write what he sees and to send it to the seven churches scattered through the province of Asia. Jesus aims to, to uh, help to encourage, to prepare his followers for what they are about to face, the crushing pressure of Rome in its opposition to the gospel. And they're going to face pressure to compromise with Babylon. They're going to face the pressure to be unfaithful to Jesus. And so in this book, a book, a discipleship manual, uh, Jesus aims to prepare his followers to, to warn them of the dangers of compromise and to encourage them, to spur them on in being faithful. Now, the text we come to today does double duty. It concludes what we've been walking through over the last number of weeks, and it introduces the visions to come, visions of salvation. It concludes visions of judgment, and it begins uh, John's visions of salvation. Over the last four chapters, we have seen, we have pre been presented these different pictures, these visions of God's judgment on Babylon, God's judgment on Rome, God's judgment on uh, the inhabitants of the earth in their rebellion and rejection of God. First, in the outpouring of the seven bowls of wrath. Uh, then in chapters uh, 17 and 18, first, a vision of this prostitute riding on a scarlet beast representing the empire of Rome and its opposition to God's people and to God. And then last week in chapter 18, this lament as the kings of the earth and the merchants and the merchant marine mourn. They lament over the fall of Babylon. These various visions all speaking to the judgment of, of Rome, the judgment of God upon those who rebel and reject and persist in that rebellion and rejection of him. Now through these chapters, what has been clearly revealed is that Rome has seduced the nations, that, that corrupted them with her idolatries and injustice. She has gotten filthy rich, we saw this last week, through oppressive economic policies and practices off the backs of the poor, 
by crushing others, and she's drunk, but not drunk with wine, drunk on the blood of the saints. Rome has been responsible for the slaughter of many believers. And because of Rome's rejection of God, because of Rome's great arrogance, because of Rome's defiance of God and all that is right, she will be judged. God will one day pour out his holy and just wrath upon her. She will get what she deserves. That has been the message that we have encountered over the last few chapters. This morning, we come to this passage that concludes that and introduces us to visions of salvation. Would you follow along as I read uh, Revelation 19, 1 to 10? After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are His judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of His servants. And again they shouted, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne, and they cried, Amen! Hallelujah! Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him, both great and small, then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah! For our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, these are the true words of God. At this I fell at his feet to worship him. Worship. But he said to me, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and sisters who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For it is the spirit of prophecy who bears testimony to Jesus. I want to, do, I want to in the time we have together this morning, I want to ask three questions of this text. What did John hear? Second what is said to have come? And third, what does this mean for us? What did John hear? What is said to have come? And what does this mean for us? So question one, what did John hear? In the last part of chapter 18, you may recall that John looked and he saw a mighty angel who picked up an enormous boulder, a, a huge boulder the size of a giant millstone, and threw it violently into the sea. It was an acted parable. It was a, a symbol of God's coming judgment upon Rome. In this way, Babylon, Rome, will be cast down never to rise again. It is this acted parable of judgment. That's what John saw. Now in chapter 19, as it opens, John hears something. It's described for us in verse 1. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting. Now, John will tell us more in a moment about the shout. We'll, we'll look at that, but let's pause here for a moment. John hears what sounded like a great roar, the roar of a crowd, the roar I tried to describe, the roar that I'm sure many of you have heard in different places where there's great excitement, maybe at a sporting event, just a huge roar of celebration. He hears a, a great roar, an eruption of joy, the roar of a great multitude. Later, this multitude, or what John hears in verse 6, will be described a little differently. Uh, like a great multitude, like the sound of rushing waters, loud peals of thunder. Just think of the volume. Have you ever had that experience? Maybe in a sports stadium. Some of you I know have stood by the Niagara Falls and you just hear the roar of the waters. Loud peals of thunder. Just th this loud, overwhelming cry on the lips of this multitude in heaven. 
Uh, This is a multitude we've already encountered in the Revelation. Remember back in the breaking of the seals, between uh, the breaking of the sixth seal and the breaking of the seventh seal, chapter 7, there's these two interlude visions. And John uh, looks in the first interlude vision, he sees this multitude, this this group, 144,000, remember, 12,000 from 12 tribes in Israel, described, uh, numbered for holy war. And in the very next vision, he sees that same group, and now uh, this multitude that cannot be counted. It's not a literal 144,000. It's speaking of the people of God, Jew and Gentile together. He sees this great multitude in heaven. And here's what we read there uh, in the second vision. And there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne uh, and before the Lamb. Back in chapter 7, in that interlude vision, here's what that great multitude sang. Salvation belongs to to our God who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb. Here in chapter 19, the, 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 the specific words are a little bit different, but the content is identical. Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. And you may have noticed when I read our text that there are four hallelujahs in these verses. We'll come back to those in a moment. But I want us to look at the first of the hallelujahs, verse 1. Uh, verse 1 is a response of the people of God to what was called for in chapter 18, verse 20. Remember last chapter, in the midst of this lament over fall, the fall of Babylon, that is the inhabitants of the earth, the kings of the earth, the merchants, the merchant marines, those who had been playing the game with Rome, those who had benefited from Rome's uh, oppressive economic policies, they are lamenting the fall of Babylon. And in the midst of that, there's this call to the church, to God's people, rejoice over her, you heavens, rejoice, you people of God, rejoice, apostles and prophets, for God has judged her, that is Babylon, with the judgment she imposed on you. Here's what we encounter in the first hallelujah. The the multitude in heaven, God's people responding, praising God because He has judged Babylon. The people of God rejoicing because the great prostitute has been judged. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God for true and just are His judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of His servants. So whereas the kings of the earth and the merchants and the merchant marine and the inhabitants of the earth, those who identified with the prostitute, those who benefited from her wickedness, though they lament the fall of Babylon, here we see this great multitude in heaven praising God and celebrating her judgment. Those who belong to the Lamb, those who are loyal to the Lamb, who have remained faithful despite crushing pressure, those who have shed their own blood in their faithfulness to Jesus, they will rejoice. Now, this is not so much rejoicing at the doom or the demise of others as it is uh, celebrating what God's judgment means. When I, again, go, go back to sports, as, as a sports fan who enjoys watching sports, there's a, there's a qualifier here. But generally speaking, I don't cheer for a team to lose. I cheer for my team to win. Now, there are exceptions. My boys would assure you of that. There are some teams that I want to see lose. But that's not the point here. This is God's judgment means the, the setting of all things right. It is it's God's judgment on what is evil and, and the Babylon, these, these systems on the beasts. It is, it is the end, the defeat of Babylon, the defeat of the dragon, defeat of the two beasts, the vindication of the martyrs. Remember the martyrs back in chapter uh, Chapter 6, the martyrs under the altar crying out, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? 
How long, Lord? It was the cry of believers who lost their lives in faithfulness to Jesus. And now, with the arrival of God's judgment, God is beginning to set all things right, and there is great rejoicing because the end for evil and rebellion has come. Now, I mentioned a few moments ago that there are, within our text, four hallelujahs. Uh, the first one is on the lips of this great multitude in verse 1. Hallelujah. Same group on verse 3. Hallelujah. Verse 4, now it's the, the heavenly entourage. Remember uh, John's vision in chapters 4 and 5 where he was invited up to heaven. He looks through this door and he sees a throne and he sees around the throne four living creatures, 24 elders. He sees them again and they sing, they cry out this time, Amen, hallelujah. And then fourth again, the multitude in verse 6. Hallelujah. 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 Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Four times in these few verses. And what's interesting is that this is the only place in the entire New Testament where we encounter the word hallelujah. In the Old Testament, we mostly encounter it in the Psalms. But what does it mean? What does hallelujah mean? Well, literally, a very wooden, literal translation would, would mean you praise Yah. Or Yahweh. Yah was short for Yahweh. Now, hallelujah. You praise Yah. You, you praise God. What is interesting is that most of the hallelujahs that we find in the Old Testament, we find in the Psalms, and most of those we find in Psalms 113 to 118. Now, why that's significant is this. Because those Psalms were the Psalms that were sung during the celebration of the Passover. Uh, many of you will be familiar with the Passover, but for those who may not be, let me just remind you. Uh, God's people were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. God heard them crying out, oppressed and persecuted. And God raised up Moses and sent Moses to lead them out of slavery. Uh, on the night that they were de finally delivered from slavery... God had already sent Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh, and time after time they had said, let my people go, and Pharaoh at first just denied it. Then he said yes, but he kept changing his mind, and so finally there was going to be a tenth plague that would fall. The, the firstborn, both human, human firstborns, animal firstborn, throughout the land of Egypt would be struck dead by the angel of death on this night. And God's people were instructed that they were to take a lamb, a pure uh, spotless lamb, they were to slaughter it, roast the meat for a meal, and take some of the blood and, and spread it on the doorposts of their home. And wherever that blood was spread on a doorpost, that night when the angel of death passed over Egypt, the angel of death would pass over that house. The, the, the oldest born would be saved. And the people were supposed to eat this meat that they'd roasted, eat this meal, this Passover meal, with their sandals on, their, their belts on, their, their garments tucked in, ready to run, ready to go, so that when the moment the command came, they would flee, they would go. And that night, the angel of death passed over, and the firstborn of all the Egyptians was killed. And Pharaoh said, go, get out of here. And Moses led God's people out. And year after year after year for generations, they were to celebrate. They were to observe this Passover meal, to remember, to celebrate God's deliverance, God's salvation, God's great deliverance. Now, the, the Exodus event was the foundational salvation story. It was the foundational uh, story of deliverance in the life of this nation. It profoundly shaped how Israel thought of themselves, how they, they, they were those who had been saved. They had experienced this exodus. And so they continue to observe this. Jesus, in Mark's gospel, gathers with his disciples on the night 
he was betrayed to celebrate this meal, the Passover meal, roasted lamb. And what was part of the Passover celebration was the reading of these psalms, Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. Psalm 113 and 114 would typically be read before the meal, and then one or all of 15 through 18, 115 through 118 would be sung afterwards. And in Mark's Gospel, we read that after the meal, Jesus and his disciples sung a hymn. Almost certainly it was one of these psalms, if not all of them. They sung these hymns of salvation, these hymns of deliverance, these hymns in which we find that refrain, hallelujah, hallelujah, praise God, praise Yahweh. The thread that runs throughout those psalms is, is that of God's deliverance for Israel. Hallelujah was a cry of celebration, of deliverance for salvation. So do you see why the, call, the cry hallelujah here is so significant? This is the moment that God's people have been waiting for. As they have faced opposition, as they have faced the fury of the dragon, as they have faced the oppression of the beast from the sea and the beast from the earth, they have, they have suffered, they have cried out, how long, Lord? How long will we have to suffer? How long till we are avenged? Here is the moment where in their history, they experienced salvation. Hallelujah. God, praise God for his salvation. And so here, a new exodus, a new deliverance, a new day of salvation, not from Egypt, but from Babylon, from the dragon. God is, right now, in their experience, God is setting things right. He is reversing the curse. Therefore, they cry out, Hallelujah. Praise God. Praise Yahweh for his salvation. Now, before we move on to our second question, there is another matter that we need to focus on and consider. That there is something that is vital for us to understand if we are to be moved to worship with the kind of joy and exuberance that we see in this text, where, where we, even, even with our lower numbers and, and online we can't hear you, but, but if we were to erupt with joyous celebration like we see here, there is something else that we need to understand. Eugene Peterson writes this, The salvation songs and images that St. John sets before us are placed against a backdrop of catastrophe. Salvation is the answer to catastrophe. The dimensions of catastrophe are understood biblically to exceed human capacity for recovery. In other words, Peterson says, if we are to understand with anything moving close to the fullness of what salvation is, we first need to understand the catastrophe we face. And it is a catastrophe of massive proportions. A problem that, as he writes, exceeds our human capacity to fix. Our problem, of course, and this is true for every one of us apart from Christ, we are born in sin. We are born in rebellion against God. We, in our arrogance, uh, thumb our noses at God and say, we don't need you, God. We will go our own way. Our hearts are wicked. They are bent. We are not only sin, but we are sinners. We have walked the way of wickedness. That is the catastrophe. And the, tree, the reality is that as human beings, we are incapable of fixing what is broken. We cannot remedy what is the problem we face. This is a catastrophe. We are separated from a holy, just God. As Peterson again, as he writes, he says, if there is no accurate perception of catastrophe, there can be no adequate perception of salvation. 
For salvation is God's action that deals with the catastrophe. It is only when we recognize the depth of our problem that we can celebrate with true joy that explodes out of us, the joy of salvation. You see, we need salvation. Before we need salvation from Babylon, the great prostitute, we need salvation from sin and God's judgment. The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death, that apart from what Christ has done, apart from faith in Christ, we will stand before a just and holy God and answer for our sin. Just this week, I was with someone talking to someone, and they talked about being a good person. And see, when we talk about being a good person and God will accept me, that the reality is there's this, this complete uh, miss of the depth of the catastrophe we face. We cannot fix. Uh, God doesn't grade us on a curve. He demands that we be holy, that we be obedient, that we be pure. And every one of us has failed miserably. We cannot fix what's broken. But the wages of sin is death. Apart from Christ, we stand under God's coming judgment. But Christ... Christ the Lamb, the Lamb who was slain, was slain for us. Christ laid down His life for us, for you, for me. Christ on the cross went there to pay the penalty for our sin, for our rebellion, for our rejection, for, for all that we have ever done or will do. Christ suffered. He was the atoning sacrifice for us. He absorbed God's judgment in our place. He drank the cup of God's wrath to the very last drop so that through faith in Him, when we say, Jesus, You are my only hope, we are forgiven. We are cleansed. We are washed. We are clothed with His righteousness. We are clothed with His perfection. We are adopted. We pass from death to life, from darkness to light. We were children of wrath. Now we are children of our Heavenly Father. Through Christ, the Lamb who was slain. See, when we understand the depth of the catastrophe, we, we, we begin to see the glory of His salvation, the glory of His, His, His deliverance. And we can cry out with the, the great multitude, Hallelujah! Praise God for, for what He has done. Praise God for His goodness. Praise God for His gift of redemption. To any of you who are here, whether with us on site or watching online, who have never put your hope in Jesus, I just want to say to you that you cannot fix what is wrong with you. You cannot remedy the catastrophe that you face by your own strength, by your own efforts. But you don't have to. See, we see in the Revelation, the narrative of human history, we see the beauty and the glory of God who in His love has come in the person of His Son, Jesus, to redeem all who will trust in Him. We see the cost of His love, that Jesus laid down His life, that He suffered and died in our place. And we see how the story ends. We see Jesus standing and inviting all to come to Him. And so maybe you're sitting here today and you've never trusted Jesus. You can do that this morning. You can simply say, Jesus, I need you to deal with this catastrophe, this catastrophe of sin, my, my brokenness, my rebellion. Lord, I need you to save me because I cannot, I cannot save myself. 
You can do that this morning. I urge you. Hear Jesus' voice calling to you. Come. Come. Put your trust in me. Follow me. Receive my love. Now, if we, if we are to accurately grasp the glory of this moment in the Revelation, Revelation 19, 1-10, if our hearts are going to explode with joyous celebration, with the worship of God who has saved us through Christ, we need to see the glory of the salvation that Christ has achieved for us, snatching us from the jaws of catastrophe, from judgment. Question two, what is said to have come? Question one was, what did John hear? John heard a fourfold hallelujah, this praising of God for his salvation. What is said to have come? Listen to uh, the end of verse six and into the beginning of verse seven. Hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come. In verse nine, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. So my question is, what is it that is said to have come the wedding of the Lamb, the wedding supper of the Lamb. Here's another example, a moment in the Revelation where the imagery is a bit fluid. On the one hand, the church is the bride of Christ. On the other hand, the church is, that is, we as disciples are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Uh, we read, blessed are, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. There are seven, no big surprise, seven blessed statements, seven beatitudes in the book of Revelation. This is the fourth one. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. What, is, what does blessed mean, blessed? The Greek word is the word makarios, and it's often translated happy. Now, happy is accurate, but too weak. Uh, happy in English is tied to happenings. I I'm happy when things that I want to happen, happen. And, and makarios means more than that. It, 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 it's deeper than that. It's richer than that. A number of theologians have tried to describe it uh, in, in different ways. As, as fortunate are you, or congratulations, or, or one German theologian, I love it, he says, it, it kind of, you lucky bums. I mean, blessed are you. You're lucky bums if you're invited to this feast, to this supper of the Lamb. See, it, it turns not on so much on how we feel in that moment when I talked about happenings. It, blessed is, it's a statement from God. It's about how God sees our circumstances. So you and I might be suffering right now, but God knows what is in store. God knows what is coming. And he looks at us and he pronounces this, this blessing on us. Now, in thinking about the wedding supper of the Lamb, it would be helpful for us to understand something of the, the marriage uh, customs of John's day. There were essentially three parts. Uh, the first part of uh, the marriage process, we'll call it a process, was the period of betrothal. Different than engagement, there would be a betrothal uh, ceremony. The, the prospective uh, groom would leave his father's house and he would go to the, the home uh, where this woman, prospective bride, lived and would negotiate with her father uh, the purchase price. I know that sounds horribly offensive, but in that day, the, the groom would, would make a payment. And, and with that payment, the marriage uh, was technically in effect. Uh, they, they were entering into an agreement, a legally bound agreement. This woman was set apart for him. He was set apart for her. And it would be sealed with the drinking of a cup. It was said as they would drink that the cup of the new covenant, this new 
covenant, this new agreement, this new legally binding relationship. In fact, during that period of betrothal, if the, if the prospective groom would die, that woman would be called a widow. Though they didn't live together, though they did not have intercourse during this period of time, they were legally bound to one another in this period of betrothal. Uh, the, the part two, the, the groom would return to his father's house to prepare a room for his bride. This might strike us as a little weird, but I, I saw this in a way when I went to North Africa about, I think, 15 years ago. Uh, we went out to a small village. I was visiting someone in a, in a country in North Africa, and uh, we went to visit the home of one of his co-workers, his, uh, someone that he taught with at the university in the city. We went out to this village where this young man had grown up to visit his family, his parents and his siblings. And what we found there were these small homes, flat roof homes, and his older brother who had been married and now had kids lived upstairs. And, and what you'd notice in these homes was that you'd walk around in these homes with flat roofs, they would look unfinished because there was rebar sticking up into the air. And what's the deal with that? Well, it's because next time uh, someone else gets married, we build another room so that the family all lives together. They each have their own space, kind of. I mean, not the kind of space that we want as Westerns, Westerners in North America. But, but this, the, the groom would go home and prepare a place for his bride, return to his father's house, prepare a place. And uh, during this time, the bride would prepare herself for the wedding. The third part was the actual uh, wedding. At the end of the betrothal period, the, best, uh, the, the, the groom and the best man and his friends would, would dress up and they would travel to the home of the bride-to-be. And they would arrive there, and there would be a ceremony. And it would center on the word take. The, the groom would take the woman to be his wife. And then they would travel together back to the home of the groom, to the groom's father's home, where there would be a great wedding feast that in that day would often last seven days, sometimes up to 14 days. Can you imagine a feast like that? Can you imagine fathers of daughters paying for a feast like that? A party like no other. A celebration unlike anything I think I know. Now, th this is imagery, the imagery of the text. This is the imagery of this language, the wedding supper of the Lamb. On, on the night Jesus was betrayed, He took a cup. And He said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant. Jesus paid a price for his bride. He, he laid down his life. And after his resurrection, Jesus returned to his father's home to prepare a place for his followers. And one day, Jesus, the bridegroom, will come back. And the wedding of the Lamb will take place. The wedding feast, the wedding supper of the Lamb will happen. We will join Jesus at table for a great meal. A great meal that will not last merely seven days or 14 days, but a great meal that will last forever. We're going to celebrate communion in a few minutes. And I just want to say a few things about how we tend to approach communion as believers. I think often we approach communion with great sobriety, maybe sorrowful, searching for, you know, and, and just reflecting on our sin and our need for grace. And there's a place for that. Don't, don't get me wrong. We're called to remember Christ, but, but the meal that we take 
this cup and, and wafer, this bread. And this is, this is a foretaste. It is a symbol of a great celebratory meal, a great feast. A, a, a feast that is about salvation. That is, when we gather around the table, it shouldn't be just like, oh, I'm, I'm you know, looking down and feeling sorry. I'm so sorry that Jesus died. It's not a pity party for Jesus. Yes, Jesus died for our sins, but he did so willingly. He did so out of love for us. He did so with joy so that we might be saved. So as we gather at the table, it is a time to shout hallelujah because he has saved us because of his great deliverance of us. This is, is an eschatological meal. It is a foretaste of the great feast we will have, the wedding supper of the Lamb. Jesus said to his disciples, I will not drink this fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb, you lucky bums. Brothers and sisters, it might sound a little crass, but Gordon Fee says, our God is a partying God. I mean, read through the parables of Luke 15. There is more joy in heaven over the repentance of a sinner. There's this great celebration, this explosive joy. That's what we hear here in heaven. This great multitude and the, the four living creatures and the 24 elders all shouting, Hallelujah! And it's an enormous sound, the sound of rushing water, loud peals of wonder, thunder. It's just, it's this overwhelming expression, this explosion of joy. And we sit here on our hands... Shorter Catechism, Westminster Catechism, says the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. There are many who argue that how we glorify God is by enjoying Him, celebrating His goodness, celebrating His grace, celebrating His great gift of salvation. Gordon Fee says facetiously, we think the chief end of man is to glorify God even if you have to grit your teeth and grind it out. Now our God is a partying God. When Christ returns... When Christ returns, when the curtain is pulled back, there will be before us a great feast. There will be a time of great celebration for God has redeemed us. Question three, what does this mean for us as readers of the text today? Well, I would suggest, and, and I'm preaching to myself because... I don't smile enough. I've been told that before. I'm trying. But there is reason to smile. There is reason for joy, is there not? I have been contending that the book of Revelation is not a crystal ball that tells us history in advance. It is a discipleship manual. Uh, Jesus, through these words, is preparing us. He's preparing His people. Those who follow Him around the world He's preparing us for whatever it is we will face. Warning us of the dangers of compromising with Babylon. Encouraging us to remain faithful to Him in the face of whatever pressure we experience. And where I want to begin uh, as we seek to apply this text this morning is to remember those to whom it was originally written. Remember the five, five of the seven churches. We, we walked through Jesus' messages to the churches in chapters 2 and 3. Five of those seven messages, Jesus called the church to repentance. He, he, he rebuked the church for what was wrong in their life. Now, in, in many cases, not all of them, but in many cases, there was much that he commended first, but he called them to repent. 
He, he, he pointed out areas of their life that were inconsistent with, with their identity as his followers, as his disciples. He called them to repentance. He warned them. He told them to turn from their sin, to turn from the ways of Babylon. Now, this is a good time for us to take a quick look at verse 8. If you have your Bibles there, we haven't looked at it closely. Verse 8, we read this, Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her, that is, to the church, the bride, to wear. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. But the verse continues with this note in parenthesis. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. So John tells us that the fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's people. That's what he says in brackets. So is he saying, is this about works righteousness? As in, we, we work hard, we live righteously, and, and that is what we're clothed with. We're clothed with our own righteous act. Is that what John is saying? Look with me again at the first part of the verse. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. So which is it? Is it the righteousness, the righteous acts of God's people? Is it our righteous acts? Or is this the righteousness given to us by God? Here's how Daryl Johnson responds at this point. Listen to the full quote. The answer is, yes, both. He goes on and says, Jesus calls us to himself. Then in relationship with himself, he begins to free us, especially from captivity to Babylon, and begins to empower us to live a new life. Our new life leads to new deeds, the righteous deeds of the saints. Yet it is because of his presence with us, it is because of his power at work in us, that we are able to do the new deeds. That is why they are called deeds of the saints. Deeds of those who are already saved and being saved. Deeds done not in order to get into a relationship with the Holy One, but done because of the relationship with the Holy One. See, when we put our trust in Christ, we are clothed with His righteousness, but we are filled with His Spirit, and He empowers us and leads us and transforms us so that we grow in obedience, we grow in holiness. It's never, it's never about our performance for Him, but our performance changes as He transforms us, as His Spirit guides us and empowers us to live new lives. And so here, speaking of the bright linen given to her, That is, we receive our righteousness from God and even the righteous deeds that we do are given to us from God through His Spirit at work in us. But here's what is helpful at this point. Do you remember I said last week or the week before, I don't remember when, I talked about some of the titles that people give to the book of Revelation. One of them is a tale of two cities, thinking about the city of Babylon and the new Jerusalem. Or the tale of two women, the harlot and the bride. Think about what we encountered last week over the last number of weeks, this view of Babylon, the great prostitute, the harlot, dressed in purple and scarlet, bedecked with fine jewelry, pearls, gold, and precious stones, and with a gold cup in her hand, drunk, not with wine, but with the blood of the saints. And here we see another woman, a bride, dressed beautifully in fine linen, bright and clean. She stands in sharp, sharp contrast to the woman that we've encountered earlier. Righteousness given by God, produced in us by God. See, what we need to understand as we think about this text is that the fundamental discipleship issue, the fundamental discipleship issue is loyalty to Christ, fidelity, faithfulness to Christ. We are engaged. We are betrothed to Christ, to the Lamb. 
And we don't want to be found in bed with another lover. You can't be engaged to two, to two brides. True story, a number of years ago, a young man called me here at the office. I'd never met him. I didn't know him, but he asked to come see me. And so he came and sat down and began sharing a bit of his story. And he told me that he was, he was engaged to a beautiful young woman. They were going to get married. He loved her. and was really excited about that. And that, that sounded great. I said, that's wonderful. Why do you look so distressed? And he said, well, I met another woman and I've fallen in love with her too and I've been dating her as well. Sin is not a matter of just breaking rules. It's about breaking a relationship. Sin is profoundly relational. And we are called to faithfulness. Because Jesus, in His great love for us, has given Himself for us. He, he has paid a price for us. He has gone away to prepare a, a, a place for us. And He's coming back to celebrate that union. Celebrate that wedding with a great feast. And so, as His disciples, we're called to, to faithfulness. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to Him. But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Brothers and sisters, we are called to sincere and pure devotion to Christ, to faithfulness to Christ, that relationship, not out of fear, not out of a desire to earn something, but simply out of a desire to be faithful to the one who has given everything for us. For those of you who are married, perhaps even just engaged, do you remember when you first fell in love? The only thing that mattered was being with that person. And you found time. I mean, I remember I didn't sleep nearly enough those days. You would, you would do anything to be with that person who you love. There was just joy and delight in being in that person's presence. We as God's people are betrothed to the Lamb, the one who loves us incredibly, more than we can even imagine. So as disciples of Jesus living in Babylon, we are called to repent where there are things in our life that that are inconsistent with what it means to be his disciple. We're called to repent and to, to rest in Jesus, to run to Jesus, to, to invite his spirit to produce in us a growing faithfulness and a growing delight in him. You see, the harlot will always seek to deceive us. Babylon, the Babylon we live in, will always seek to lead us into compromise. But it's this vision, this vision of this explosive joy, this celebrating God's great love, God's great salvation. It is this vision here, just hearing the roar of the multitude. This emboldens us, this encourages us to resist the lies, to resist the deception, to lean on the Spirit, and to grow in faithfulness for joy, for the joy of knowing Jesus. Through the cross of Christ, those who have become, have been invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Remember I described, and perhaps some of you remember that day in October 1992 when the World Series was won in that moment. Maybe you were in a place where you heard a great eruption of joy around you. 
Here we are reminded of a far greater salvation, a far greater victory, the victory won by Christ through His shed blood. He loves us. He loves you. He has redeemed you. He has paid for us. He's coming back for us. And a day is coming when we will sit at a table with Him, with Jesus, the one for whom we were created, the, the only one who will truly satisfy our deepest longings, the, the, one, the only one in whom we will ever find true joy. We will sit at a table. We will sit at a feast. And we will celebrate His goodness, His salvation. Hallelujah. Amen.